Welcome to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. It's everything in-house, legally speaking. Technology, business practices, trends, and controversies important to corporate counsel. Welcome to Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our premier show of in-house legal. I'm attorney Paul Boynton, and I've covered the legal in-house community for over six years as a publisher and editor of in-house publications and now have my own media consultancy. Prior to joining the media, I was a trial lawyer for a number of years. Today's topic is a real barn burner. For years, in-house lawyers have struggled with keeping the lid on legal expenses. They have really tried to cope with the ever-increasing legal bills by using alternative billing techniques such as flat fees, performance-based bonuses, cap fees, discounts, and the like. A parallel problem has been simmering for years, namely the perceived disconnect between the fees being charged by outside counsel and the value of services being delivered. The cost of legal services keeps increasing each year, but in-house counsel are increasingly frustrated with the results they are getting. The Association of Corporate Counsel, with over 20,000 in-house lawyers as members, has said, enough is enough. They have launched what it calls the Value Challenge Initiative. It is an ambitious plan designed to create ongoing dialogue between in-house lawyers and their outside law firms on ways they can have more productive, efficient professional relationships. Toolkits, best practices, and ongoing seminars are in place to create an evolutionary change in the way legal fees are assessed. Now, a central concept to the Value Challenge Initiative is that in-house lawyers themselves have to start demanding more accountability and value from their service providers. Real change likely won't happen absent a real push from in-house counsel. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us Susan Hackett, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the ACC. Susan is the primary leader of the Value Challenge Initiative and is at the forefront of this potentially revolutionary change in the billing relationship between inside and outside counsel. We're also very fortunate to have Jeffrey Stone join us today. Jeff is a partner at McDermott Will & Emery. He heads the firm's trial department and is a member of the firm's executive and management committees. Welcome, Susan and Jeff, and thank you for joining us today to discuss with us this very important topic. Susan, I'd like to start uh, with you. The ACC launched its initiative uh, in October, and I just would like you to provide our listeners with an update as to what's been happening out there. Give us an update on the response so far of in-house lawyers and their outside law firms. Well, thanks very much for having me today, Paul, and, and, and Jeff, I look forward to talking with you about all of these issues, too. Um, well, you know, ACC, in launching this initiative, had done a lot of work prior to the formal launch. Um, and we spent about a year working on this and in, in trying to do some focus grouping and see what kind of, of uh, interest would be out there. One of our concerns was um, whether or not people would embrace this change. This, this topic is, as everyone who's listening knows, as old as the hills. This is not some kind of new area that we've just discovered a concern in the marketplace. This is something that has been... The, the gripe of every in-house and outside counsel for, for, frankly, for decades. So in working on this, we wanted to try to find out if there was an opportunity for us to do something different, if you will, that would actually move the needle on these issues. And we were, frankly, shocked at the uh, response that we had. We, we thought there would be 
certainly some healthy um, pessimism about whether things would work, but we didn't know if people would actually be ready to stand up and move. And what we have found is the response has been so overwhelming, so incredibly supportive from both in-house counsel and firms and from the legal services providers who are out there serving the legal profession that we feel very confident that our problem isn't whether there's momentum or acceptance. Our problem is going to be figuring out the appropriate strategies to funnel all that energy into meaningful change. In some ways, it's like trying to drink from the fire hose. We, we have so many people involved, and, and now we're in that, that wonderful and difficult circumstance of trying to figure out how to actually engage them. So right now, I think that the problem isn't whether or not people wish to, to, to move forward with us. It's a problem of how to employ them. Um, meaningfully. And I think that one of the things that we've been finding is that talking with folks in general is certainly important to this process, but probably the most important thing that we're doing right now is encouraging dialogue between people at a, a more global level, rather than just encouraging people to talk within their ongoing relationships, which sometimes can be difficult because people move into somewhat defensive postures when they're defending their life, if you will. Um, what we're doing right now is trying to look for solutions and tools that can be employed generally by bringing people together in groups where they may not be involved in a current relationship with the folks across the table, but can therefore talk a little bit more openly about what some of the real issues are and how to get toward resolving them. Susan, uh, let's start with a very basic uh, premise. What is value? That's the title of the initiative, Value Challenge. What is value as the ACC sees it? Well, value will be defined by each client and each firm and each uh, lawyer involved in the process potentially differently. What, what's valuable to a uh, general counsel who's a solo practitioner in a mid-cap company may be entirely different from what is value for the general counsel of a Fortune 50 or for the outside partner at a large firm versus the outside partner at a, at a smaller firm. So we're not trying to come up with one single definition of value. What we're trying to do is to encourage people in their relationship to better align the cost of legal service and the methods they employ to deliver legal services to the definition of value as they see it in their relationships and for any particular matter they're working on. Can we just uh, pick up on one point that you made? Better align cost. That seems to be the nub of it. Uh, can you explore that a little bit? Well, the first thing to note is that the issue is certainly related to cost. I mean, cost and value cannot be separated, um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective in, in this process. But I, I don't wish for people to assume that the, the ACC value challenge means that what we're looking for is cheap. Good legal services, especially in the corporate sector, are not cheap. And what's, what the purpose of this initiative is, is not to try to get folks out there to uh, offer uh, inexpensive or lower quality services. I don't think that quality is sacrificed by a discussion of value, nor is profitability in firms. What we're really trying to suggest is that sometimes on a matter, value is a $1,000 an hour lawyer. I think usually the place that we've heard most people talk about cost and value is when you get into talking about people who are charging $450 an hour for document work. That's where you start to see people worried about whether the cost and the value are properly aligned. Or when you look at the staffing that either a firm or a legal service provider is putting on work, is the value of that work being done properly reflected by the staffing that's been assigned to it? I think that, that 
the, the billable hour is clearly related to this initiative, even though it's not entirely targeted by this, uh, this initiative. But the idea that the only way we can value a lawyer's service is by how much time they have spent on a matter and what their rate is for an hour of their time or six minutes of their time or whatever is probably not the best way in most circumstances to really look at what the value of what the lawyer is providing is. Jeff, let me turn to you. Uh, what are some of the challenges that uh, your firm, McDermott, Will & Emery, is facing in its relationships with corporate clients, and how are you and your partners meeting those challenges? Well, first, let me say, Paul, thank you for, for asking me to be on this, and I agree with virtually everything that, that Susan has said. I think that, I think that this uh, issue is an issue that affects both clients and providers, and if there is not satisfaction on both sides of that proposition, uh, we're destined to, to be in an unsatisfactory relationship. I, I think Susan hit the nail on the head. What we have to make sure is that there is a clear expectation of what what does value look like in a particular relationship. It's very important for the in-house lawyers, the solicitors of legal service, and the providers of legal service to have a, 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 a comprehensive understanding of what, what is being expected of the provider of legal services. What does success look like? What are the expectations? Disappointed expectations, disappointed budget expectations, disappointed result expectations are a recipe for a disaster. It's important for the law firm to be able to say, we're not the right we're not the right provider for this service. If we're at a very high end and we're charging very high rates and this is a commoditized piece of business, they have, law firms have to have the courage to stand up and say, we'll be happy to do this for you, but it'll be very expensive and I have a better alternative or I have a better suggestion. Uh, I've never met an in-house lawyer who resisted me when I said, we're happy to do this for you. But let me tell you, I don't really think if I were in your shoes, I'd be asking McDermott, Will, and Emery to do this because I think we're either too expensive or we're not the right firm for this piece of business. On the other hand, when there is a major piece of uh, high-risk or high-value piece of legal work, um, sometimes the legal costs are such a small portion of what the overall exposure is that the the hourly rate or the total dollars that are going to be charged for legal services almost get lost in terms of the significance of the matter. Um, one of the best descriptions of um, uh, some work that I did for a firm, for a, for a client once was, you know, this guy was really expensive and he was worth every penny. In some ways, that's a very high compliment. When, when the bill comes out and the client looks back and says, I'm really glad that we used this firm or this lawyer because the talent that they brought to the problem, the energy they brought to the problem, the way they priced the, the, the legal services was fair in the context of the significance of the overall matter. When you hit that sweet spot, um, that leads to a very successful and usually long-term relationship. The reason that it doesn't happen frequently is that there isn't an intelligent conversation about that on the front end. And what the ACC is doing in terms of this value challenge initiative, I believe, is creating tools, creating opportunities, creating a roadmap so that that discussion happens in an appropriate way at an appropriate time 
to lead to an intelligent result. So what you're both saying is that what it boils down to is an ongoing dialogue, um, uh, managing expectations, and uh, figuring out what is the best and most efficient way to to staff legal matters. I'd I'd add one more thing to that, Paul. Sure. I think that the outside lawyers have to put themselves in the position of the in-house lawyer and say, how can we really get this job done in a way that's going to satisfy the in-house lawyer? We, we at McDermott, for example, um, have created a new, a new level of attorney. Uh, we call them staff attorneys. Uh, some other firms have done this as well. I don't want to claim that McDermott is the only one that's doing it, but we're using it quite extensively. Susan raised the issue of a lawyer charging $450 an hour to, to conduct discovery. That makes no sense. You don't have to find, you don't have to pay somebody $450 an hour to get that level of work done. So efficiency can be finding somebody who's charging out at the right level, who's really got the experience, who's really got the talent, who's really got the focus and the dedication to get that job done. Inside lawyers should be asking their outside lawyers, who's going to do the work, at what level, how are you going to staff it, how many people are going to be devoted to this. And when you start seeing multiplicity of of people, you should be asking additional questions as to whether there's an efficiency level there. But law firms have to create more nimble responses to the demand for legal services. It's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. The $1,000-an-hour lawyer should only be doing the work that only a $1,000-an-hour lawyer can do. And the $105-an-hour lawyer should be doing the work that that's, that's appropriate for that $105-an-hour lawyer to do. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Uh, When we return, we'll talk more about the Value Challenge Initiative with Susan Hackett of the ACC and Jeff Stone of McDermott, Will & Emery. And in particular, I want to pick up on the point that Susan touched upon, the fate of the billable hour. Please stay tuned through this short sponsor message, and we'll be right back with more in-house legal with attorney Paul Boyton. Are you interested in sponsoring in-house legal or other programs on the Legal Talk Network? We'd love to have you on board. Contact our sales department today at 781-551-9960. Now more with attorney Paul Boyden, experienced in the issues important to in-house counsel. Welcome back to In-House Legal. I am your host, Paul Boynton. We are joined by Susan Hackett, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the Association of Corporate Counsel, and Jeff Stone, partner at McDermott, Will, and Emory. I would like to pick up on the uh, notion of the billable hour. And Susan, you had uh, suggested that you know measuring uh, the value of a lawyer's time by the rate that they charge and the time they spent on the matter is not necessarily the, uh, the best way to measure value. Do you want to pick up and uh, expand upon that? Sure. I think that a lot of people assume that the ACC Value Challenge Initiative is largely about a desire to kill the billable hour. And while I firmly believe that if this uh, challenge is successful, the billable hour may die, that's not the, the, the primary focus of, of the, the initiative. Um, indeed, there may be situations, and I, I believe there are situations, in which the billable hour may be the best uh, methodology, if you will, for for 
pricing a, a lawyer's services and delivering some kinds of legal services. And so I, I'm, I don't ever wish to suggest that there aren't times and there aren't circumstances where the billable hour is a, is a good way to go. But I think that the presumption of both in-house and outside counsel that they can't seem to get away from the billable hour in pricing legal services or in defining the, the value of a lawyer's contribution is really not only messing up the management and driving the wrong factors within law firm business models and within corporate legal department management, but it's also really stymieing the, the innovation that I think is necessary for lawyers to bring to client work, not only to realize cost savings, but also to improve the, the quality of the work that's being delivered. So is this all about just finding alternative fee structures? Well, well, certainly we will be exploring a lot of things about alternative fee structures. But I think what it really comes down to is spending a lot of time talking about how we value a lawyer's contributions and services and looking at what it is that lawyers provide. There, there are a couple of things that, that, that kind of tie into this conversation. First of all, what is it that a lawyer does? Uh, it used to be, you know, in, in, in Abe Lincoln lawyer days, it used to be real easy to define what lawyers did and what you hired a lawyer to do. But in today's very complicated marketplace and in the kinds of complex matters that clients have, lawyers are contributing all kinds of services, some of which are legal, some of which are business strategic, some of which are in areas that lawyers traditionally may not have been involved in, and some of which are in areas where there are lots of folks who are non-lawyers who can probably provide some of these services. So taking a look at what it is we wish to have lawyers do on a matter, who it is they're supervising, and, and what it is that they're trying to work on is an important part of this process because in order to really start to value a lawyer's services, we have to know what it is we need lawyers to do versus what it is we can have others work on and what it is we can outsource to other providers so that lawyers are working to their highest purpose, if you will. I think another element of this is to take a look at how it is that the billable hour has driven the, the, the management structure and business structure of corporate legal departments and law firms, respectively. The first thing to look at when you're looking at valuation of legal services is that while in-house counsel are often the folks talking a big game about wanting an alternate way to do it, at the end of the day, they're probably for the most part, just as confused as many outside counsel are about how to do something different. Everyone agrees that the billable hour may not be the appropriate way to value services in a large majority of legal work, but not knowing what the alternative means or how to figure out what it is that that work should cost is preventing people who are talking about that desire from actually moving toward realizing a different way to price the work out. So we need to spend some time looking at what alternative fees or alternative billing really means, because I don't think in-house counsel have got the silver bullet that if law firms would just listen and implement, gee, we'd all be done. Nobody knows what to do. And I think outside firms that are interested in promoting these kinds of services at different kinds of fees to their clients are often running into clients who say, gee, we really appreciate your innovation. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure if what you proposed is actually a better deal for us either. So why don't we just go back to that billable hour and you give us a 10 or 15% rate decrease? That That's not moving toward a better system that's going to really start to drive efficiencies or innovation in any way. That's just another way of looking at an hourly system that, that we all agree may not be working very well. So I think the challenge is not only in deciding that we want to move to a new way of looking at lawyer valuation, it's figuring out some of the tools 
some of the metrics and some of the ideas that both in-house and outside counsel need to be more skilled in developing in order to actually do something other than the billable hour. You can't kill it until you know what it's gonna, what's going to replace it, if you will. So a lot of our work right now is in developing uh, different kinds of conversations and different kinds of tools that will allow people to better value services. And if you want to get into it a little bit later, we can talk about how it is that in-house counsel and law firms can better mine the information they have about matters to figure out how else to cost them other than just on a billable hour basis. Uh, before we go there, I just wanted to uh, pick up on the uh, notion that what's vital to this whole process is the dialogue. And it seems to me a key component of that is in-house counsel and their um, outside counsel sitting down at the front end and trying to come up with a game plan uh, rather than uh, down the road once the bill is received in-house counsel, sort of managing the bill and, as you uh, mentioned, uh, l- looking for you know 5% discount here or a 10% discount there. Uh, Jeff, if you want to talk about that and give us some of your experiences and how you've been working with your, your in-house counsel clients. Thanks, Paul. I think that there are two discrete but, but related issues that if in-house counsel and outside counsel focused on at the outset, not only would it clarify the expectations going in, but I think it leads to a much more satisfactory result. And the, the two issues are both, are first, the pricing structure, and second, uh, the management or the efficiency of, of the process. Um, as Susan alluded to, you have to have a conversation, an explicit conversation about what's the pricing structure going to look like. That's the first point. Is there going to be a straight reliance on the billable hour? And Susan's exactly right. In my experience at McDermott, the vast majority, maybe 90% of our clients, default to and prefer the billable hour, notwithstanding the times we've offered them all sorts of creative and different uh, alternative billing structures. Why? Because it's known, it's comfortable, they, they understand the budget uh, implications of a billable hour. Um, if they have some, some data or some experience, they think they have a reasonably good shot of coming in under budget, which is always a big deal to in-house in-house counsel, with contingency fees or success premiums or other alternative relationships. It's not always clear where you're going to come out, and I think when you have a large rolled-up budget, it's very hard to know where you're going to be at the end of the quarter or the end of the year. And I think that lack of certainty inhibits general counsel or inside counsel from from taking on some of those other more creative initiatives that, that Susan alluded to. So I think there has to be a clear meeting of the minds on the front end about the pricing structure. The second component to avoiding disappointed expectations is to make sure that the management of the process is clear from the beginning and is, is, is consistent and is, is applied evenly throughout constant communication about the development of the case, constant communication about who's doing the work and what what time is being spent on it or what, what energy is being expended. Uh, we, we have a motto around here, which is no surprises. Uh, surprises are terrible. When that bill, when that, when the general counsel opens up the email and gets the PDF of the bill and it's three times what they expected, inevitably there's a bad conversation and bad karma results. No surprises is a much better way to manage it. So the general counsel owns, co-owns the process, understands the, the trade-offs, understands the risks and the costs, and is, is a full partner in, in that decision-making process. It doesn't just happen when you set the budget uh, at the beginning of the year or the beginning of the matter. Constant communication uh, is helpful at so many levels. 
And the clients that I've had over the years that have engaged in that process fully with us are, are significantly more, more satisfied. So one of the things that, that comes out of this, uh, the work that the, uh, uh, the ACC is doing is to encourage that dialogue, both at a global level, how do we approach this, but to create a, uh, an atmosphere, a backdrop, if you will, that that kind of consistent and constant communication becomes the norm. Those are the most successful relationships on both sides of the ledger. Susan, uh, I'd like you to pick up on what you had uh, alluded to uh, just a few minutes ago about some of the uh, tools and techniques that you have in place to to assist in-house counsel and then their outside counsel uh, as well to uh, start um, implementing some of these innovative ideas. Well, I think there are going to be a number of things that we will look at over time. We We don't know the answers yet. But one of the things we're working on is providing a variety of different kinds of ideas and tools that people can start to look at, as well as some collaborative um, discussion tools that, that start to, to come out. And they may change over time. So I want to suggest, first off, that what we've already put in our toolkit may be the worst idea in the world by next year, when we've gotten a little further down the road and people have experimented a bit more. I think one of the premises of what we're looking at putting in these toolkits is a, a, a sense and an understanding that this will be an evolutionary process. We, we think of this, this movement, if you will, as a revolutionary movement in the sense that it really does seek to completely re-examine the way that in-house and outside counsel work together and, 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 and presume that there is nothing sacred about the, the relationship that shouldn't be looked at and improved. But having said that, the way this will happen is over time in an evolutionary manner and probably a bit at a time. I don't expect that any law firm or any legal department will completely throw out everything that they do right now and start again with something fresh tomorrow. That's not realistic. What will probably happen is that within firms, a practice group, for instance, might come forward and say, we're willing to experiment with this. And within departments, folks will say, I think I'll try to implement that. And they will start to work toward greater change. So the, the first thing I'd note to you is that even with the tools that we're putting out there, we don't expect that the market will significantly change or be fixed in three months. This is going to be a five to ten year process probably at best. We're hoping for significant gains as we move forward in, 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 you know, over the course of a, a shorter period of time. But we're not suggesting that there's some silver you know, bullet out there that, that if folks would just pick it up and implement it as the widget of the, of the project, that, that suddenly everything will be better. What we are looking at doing, for instance, though, is, is helping people who want to look at alternative uh, fee structures to figure out exactly where it is that those, the information necessary to establish fees would be. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you that our purpose, and frankly, it would be inappropriate for us, would be to try to say that you know uh, the, the cost of this kind of service or this element of a service is X dollars, and that's what it is that our members should pay across the country to any firm they're working on. That's just, frankly, stupid. But there is a lot of information out there that people should be mining and putting together so that they can better assess whether or not there are ways to work on things that will help them price matters that, that does draw from information that's out there. So, for instance, to ask firms that have practice areas that do a lot of repetitive-type work, I'm not saying it's unsophisticated or routine, simply that they have a lot of experience doing it. So say a firm does single plaintiff employment litigation on a regular basis. They can go in and look at the multiplicity of cases of all different kinds that have been single matter, um, single plaintiff employment matters, and look at how much it costs them to start 
from start to finish to, to provide that service. You can dot matrix that stuff. And when we've done this with firms, you'd be amazed. There are a couple of dots on that matrix that are really high. The, the cost was huge for some reason in the case, and there are a number that are down below a, a, a group in the center that, that, and, that ended quickly and easily. But the vast majority of those cases seem to come within this band in the middle, suggesting that, you know, for firms that are willing to look at pricing in a manner that would assume some risk, but certainly not an unreasonable risk, they could put a price at, say, 80% of where that band is in the middle and start to offer clients the ability to purchase that service start to finish for this fee. And I would be willing to guarantee firms that they will make good money on that because they will lose all of that wasted time spent arguing over bills, trying to determine whether these people should work on the matter or whether the client would want them to fly first class or not. Clients don't need to spend time on that, and neither do the lawyers in the law firm. They should decide how they can most efficiently and be driven toward the efficient management of that matter without people spending inordinate amounts of time constantly managing that bill. If we know what it is that it should cost and we work toward that cost, I think everybody in the process not only spends more time working on the actual matter, but has greater satisfaction in doing that work. So some of the tools will help people over time establish not only the, the ability to mine data, both within law firms and within law departments, but then to figure out ways to price those kinds of matters or segments of those matters so that there can be more predictability and more um, efficiency in the billing on those things. That's an example of the kinds of tools we're looking at. But there are all kinds of tools right now that we're developing, evaluation tools and review tools, tools that will help structure relationships more efficiently, tools that will look at a variety of different kinds of staffing options, and so on and so forth. And as I say, you know, what's in the toolkit right now may not be what's in the toolkit next year, and hopefully there will be much more and much better material as time goes on and more and more people collaborate and contribute. The, the whole point of this is an open platform for discussion and for sharing of these kinds of resources. As we wrap up our uh, fascinating conversation today, I just wanted to throw out a question to both Susan and Jeff. Uh, what are the biggest challenges you foresee that might jeopardize real change? Well, look, I, I think that one of the, there are a couple of pressures out there in the overall industry right now. One is the, the global economic challenge that, that we face. General counsels and, and in-house counsel are going to be sorely pressed over the next couple of years to manage their legal budgets. Their legal budgets are going to be cut. They're going to be expected to do more with less. Outside law firms have to understand that and appreciate that and be, and be full partners in that. One of the consequences of of that kind of attention is that I think many clients, many many corporations are going to be looking to reduce the number of outside legal providers that they use. They, they're going to be looking for a preferred provider list because they're going to believe they're going to get greater efficiencies, uh, there'll be less ramp-up time, uh, and, and there are a variety of advantages. I think law firms have to be uh, sensitive to the fact that it's the business, if anything, is going to get more competitive. Uh, we're going to see more more uh, dog and pony shows, or we're going to see more more challenges to become one of those preferred providers. Creating the strength of that relationship is absolutely critical. Let me throw out two ideas that we use at McDermott that have met with great success with our clients and have enhanced the relationship on both sides. One is what we call over the horizon meetings. I have relationships with my clients where on my nickel, 
I fly out and sit down with them once a quarter to talk about issues that are coming in over the horizon. Those, those conversations are both change, changes in their business or challenges in their regulatory environment, or challenges in their business environment. What are the legal implications of that? What's coming in, not on a day-to-day basis, but more globally, what's happening to their business that they need to respond to? And the other advantage of that conversation is that I learn a lot about their business. And I sit down with that general counsel or head of litigation, and I understand what's keeping her awake at night. And that gives me a huge competitive advantage in being able to be sensitive and responsive to that. The second corollary that I think we're seeing more and more of is that as firms look to become those preferred providers, they're going to expect, we want to get more work from you, and in return for that, we are willing to provide some sort of pricing break to you, a volume discount, if you will, in return for that preferred relationship. That's a win-win for both sides. It helps me budget on my side. It helps me allocate resources. It gives me some expectation if I can continue to earn the trust of the general counsel that there is more likely to be a certain amount of business and it's not hunt and kill on each discrete case. But it also gives the general counsel an incentive and and a way of managing costs. So those two, those two ideas, the over looking over the horizon, thinking about enhancing that volume-based relationship, I think has helped both sides uh, establish a more value-based relationship. Uh, Susan, any uh, closing thoughts on the uh, biggest challenges that you foresee might jeopardize real change? Well, I think that one of the things we have to, to grapple with here is that there are a number of, of firms and, and out there who believe that this kind of a discussion is a threat to their profitability. And everything that we've looked at so far in our research on this matter and the models that we've built and examined on law firm business structure suggests actually the opposite, that firms that engage in these kinds of practices won't lose profitability. Indeed, they will become far more profitable and far more satisfactory places for everybody to work in. I think on the in-house side, one of the greatest threats to this process is that lawyers are generally not great risk takers. It's in our nature, it's in our training to look for the the less risky alternative, to look for what is tried and true, to not necessarily step outside of the norm or, or, or move away from legacy relationships that have worked toward alternative uh, ways or innovative ways of working that may in the end work better, but we're kind of afraid to take that jump. And I think that one of the greatest concerns that I have is making sure that as we work forward on this process, everyone who's engaged in it has the confidence that they will be better at the end of this process, not only in what they do, but in how they're managing their work and in how their clients and their, their, their entities are, are profiting from it. So that's, that's probably the, 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 those are the, probably the two greatest concerns I have. I, I think that from a personal perspective, my greatest challenge is trying to get people to move away from business as usual. This is, this is a very well-established profession that's very successful. People are making good money. People have very uh, uh, long experience doing things the way they do it. And it is, it is probably one of the hardest parts of this process to encourage people who like the idea of change to actually believe that business as usual may not be the way to engage in change. I know that sounds probably kind of crazy, but it really is the nut of most conversations is how do I get people to do more than rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic? We've got to really turn the ship in order to avoid the iceberg. And right now I think that the idea of making sure that people understand that what we need to do is more than tinker 
we need to go to fundamental assessment and innovative ways of, of working in order to really not only meet tomorrow's challenges, but stay ahead of where we need to be in order to better serve clients. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Jeff, for joining us today to share your thoughts and insights on this fascinating and extremely important topic of the billing and working relationship between inside and outside counsel in the years to come. We hope you'll join us for another in-house legal show. Thanks for listening today. I'm Paul Boynton, host of In-House Legal, your online source of the news and information in-house lawyers need to stay ahead of the game. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. Hot topics for the in-house lawyer, legally speaking. We hope you'll listen to the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network.